Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Have you ever wondered what it would feel like to be a rock star? Center stage at some big venue singing a song you know the audience love? Well, my guest Nico Case described to me how that feels for her. It's not like anything else, you know? And sometimes when your sound on stage is just right, you feel like what it would feel like if you were a fire hose and you could spray water really hard for a really long period of time. Or you're like a fleshy windsock just hanging off of a microphone. (laughs) (laughs) It's bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Nico Case about the self-reliance that comes from losing your parents, the importance of owning your own work, and why she moved to a farm. There's cows that come over to my house. It's pretty (laughs) awesome. (laughs) They moo when they see me coming. It makes me feel good. (laughs) They're big brown eyes. Ben Tao Wen. Her 2016 album is a great one. It's called A Man Alive. And it explores the relationship she has, or more accurately doesn't have, with her father. She's had to consider whether or not she wants to reconnect with him while she still can. And I hadn't really been thinking about my dad in that way. And then she just I was just bawling in this very cute restaurant. Uh, it was so embarrassing. <laughs> but, it, you know, it, that moment is so vivid to me because I realized that this, like, fiery pit has informed everything that I've done and not done in my entire life. Plus, I'll tell you why you should give another listen to Black Sabbath. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Nico Case has a voice that's so powerful, it's kind of hard to imagine that at one point in her career, she wasn't a singer. She started as a drummer in punk bands, swept up in the excitement of the Pacific Northwest music scene in the mid-90s. At first, she sang from behind her drum kit, but then she stepped out front with a guitar, and she hasn't looked back since. Case is one of the most acclaimed artists in the world of, I don't know exactly what to call it, indie rock or singer songwritery, whatever. Anyway, it's tough to find somebody more beloved both for her solo work and her occasional dalliances in the indie supergroup, The New Pornographers. And trust me about that belovedness. I'm the person who gets the guest requests for this show. Nico Case has been running at number one basically since I started asking. When I talked with her in 2016, Case had just released a box set of her first eight albums called Truck Driver, Gladiator, Mule. She just announced a new album, her first in five years. It's going to be called Hell On and will drop next month. A quick heads up before we get into this interview. We talked a lot about Nico's home, a farmhouse in Vermont with horses and cows and all that stuff. Last year, while she was away in Sweden recording her new record, the farm burned down in a fire. She is doing fine since and no people or animals were hurt. Uh, But we just felt like we should mention it. Anyway, let's take a listen to the title track from Hell On. It's also the first single. God is not a contract or a guy. God is in a specified 
Nico Case, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm terrified of the sound of my own voice. I'm, I'm just like a writhing fetus you're, over here. Oh, God. You're in New York <laughs> and I'm in Los Angeles, and so I can't see you. But as that song was playing, I was thinking of that. You know, there are people who will sit there and sing along to their own playback because they're just, they make their music because they love it and they love to live with it or whatever. And then there are those who just can't Those people bear. are freaks. Those people are freaks. <laughs> you tell that to the Pointer Sisters. Well, if I was in the Pointer Sisters, I would sing along with my own music all the time. <laughs> but I'm sadly, I'm not. As a young woman, did you think, I'm going to be a singer once they let me out from behind this drum kit? Or did you realize you had a voice later on in the game? Well, I always really liked singing. A lot. Um, it felt really good. And then I got in a band called Mao in Vancouver, and we were all writing songs together. And I remember um, writing, I don't remember which song it was, but I was like, well, who's going to sing this? And they were like, sing it yourself. <laughs> I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to have to figure out how to do that. So I did. It was It was that simple, really. And uh, I just started writing songs that weren't necessarily the kind of songs that that band did. But um, I don't know. They shoved me off the cliff and it was good. Did you have that same fear singing that you were just describing singing on your first album that drove your relative lack of dynamics? I don't know. I was just such a aggressive kid, I think. I talked my way into it without realizing that that's what I had done or I just really believed it could happen or I'm not really sure. It's like I ha a lot of things that I did were based on the fact that I didn't know I couldn't do them. Listening back now, I know I couldn't do them. But I think it's probably pretty okay to just learn in front of people. I, I, I could not you know, re-release that first album, but it would kind of be like lying or just being dishonest. I feel like it must have been a very, I don't know, a, like a very particular experience to learn to sing on stage when you were often also playing drums, right? I mean, mm. like, there's only like, there's like Levon Helm and, and Buddy Miles and, you know, there's like, it's hard. Yeah, and Phil Collins. Yeah, there you go. Phil Collins. Phil Collins is great at singing and playing drums. Uh, but, well, you know, and Levon Helm, obviously, is kind of the end-all, be-all for me of singing and playing drums because you can't hear his breathing change, which is a really, really, really difficult thing to do. It's like he holds his body in two separate compartments to do two different things. It's just as amazing as something like cyclical breathing or something like that or I don't know, or tube and throat singing. Like, it's that amazing that you'd be able to make 
it's it's hard enough to play drums and separate your hands and feet, but then to separate your breathing from breathing for like that's insane. That's an insane skill. It's also a very athletic thing to play drums it is indeed. in a way that it is not to like play piano or play guitar. Mm, maybe. I mean, guitar is like this weird Pilates holding, and then drums are more like this weird aerobicizing workout, <laughs> depending on how you play. I mean, some people barely move. Do you think that you sang differently when you played drums? Oh, yeah. I'm sure I was huffing along like a choo-choo train. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I hope I hope it's not what I think. I mean, it was really fun to sing and play drums because you do have to do weird compartmentalized kind of swoops and things to be able to breathe at a certain time when you change your hands over. Were you afraid to front a band? Were you at all self-conscious about being the center of the attention going on stage as Nico Case rather than going on stage as a member of a band? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I didn't, you know, being at the front of the stage not holding anything, you know, because I didn't start playing guitar at the front of the band. Um, you don't know what to do with your hands ever, and that's really uncomfortable. You could hold the microphone as hard as you can, like you're worried about falling down, or I don't even remember what I did. I realized I kind of bounce up and down, um, and I didn't realize that until I saw this uh, documentary um, called International Sweethearts of Rhythm about the International Sweethearts of Rhythm, who were an all-female big band, um, kind of from the World War II era. And uh, the band leader, she's the lead singer of the band. She holds a baton in her left hand, kind of behind her. But since she's singing to the audience, she kind of just bounces up and down. And I was like, holy I do that. I wonder if that looks weird. It looks cool when she does it, but I don't know if I look very cool. But I still bounce up and down, and uh, I'm definitely not able to shut that off. Do you like performing? Yeah, I, I like it a lot. It's not like anything else, you know? And sometimes when your sound on stage is just right, you feel like what it would feel like if you were a, a fire hose and you could spray water really hard for a really long period of time. Or you're like a fleshy windsock just hanging off of a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I mean, one of the weird things that I find about performing, which I also enjoy doing, is that it is such a compact experience. You know, you're going on stage for an hour or 90 minutes or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then you have the whole rest of your life around that to sort of like bend yourself out of shape about it. Mm -hmm. Have you gotten to the point in your performing career where you feel like when you are on tour or when you have shows coming up, you can, you know, live within yourself like a normal person until it's time to go on stage? Or does that time on stage kind of reach back into the rest of your life and, and twist things up? Well, I don't have a stage persona and I'm not formal. So I feel like all day is kind of just my regular life. That doesn't mean that I don't think that it's, you know, a really important part of my day. 
But it's the part of my day where I have to be the most focused. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It it just kind of ends up, it's all kind of one in one seal a meal packet each day. And all your time is very counted for and kind of military in a way. So, yeah, it's kind of, I don't know, it's hard to describe, but I don't usually feel nervous before I go on stage. There are definitely venues that intimidate me sometimes, or I'll just get a weird little idea in my head and I get freaked out about something. But for the most part, I'm not weirded out by going on stage. It does seem totally normal. Can you give me an example of something that um, got in your head, some uh, a place or a or a thing? Well, I don't. I don't like being filmed during the show. So it, there's definitely been a lot more weird distractions since iPhones and camera phones have gotten really popular. Um, I forget the words, and I'm I'm afraid of being filmed. I really. I feel just really stocked and I don't like it and I screw up the show and people who paid money to come see the show don't get their money's worth. Do you know what I mean? Like, And I think in the end what bothers me the most if it keeps happening is the fact that I've asked people nicely not to do it and said, hey, you know, it kind of makes me feel really unhappy. Could you not do that? And people still feel like it doesn't matter what the audience around them feels or what I feel they're going to make their super <laughs> recording of it on their iPhone and kind of disrupt everyone's night, which, you know, it's not acceptable at the movies. And, you know, that's a pre-recorded event. And I remember going to see Adamant on my birthday a couple years ago, and I couldn't really see him on the stage because it was just a bunch of people's iPhone screens holding it up. And so I couldn't really see him. I could just see their phones, and that was a drag. So I just I don't want it to turn into that because there's something really nice about going to a town and having a special event where it's not like a strip mall. It's not broadcast everywhere. There's still a little bit of mystery, and we're all there together regarding one another and you know, you need your audience to complete the circuit. You need them to pay attention to you, not 100% necessarily, and they need to be doing it in a way that makes them comfortable too. But, you know, the camera phone just kind of takes you out and you're just not there anymore. And it's and it's weird. It's interesting to me because I would imagine, uh, you know, there's that, you're kind of protecting that ephemerality of that experience but it sounds like even more important to you is the kind of collective connection of being at a show, which is absolutely. You know, it's it's not just someone not just someone taking themselves out of it, but um, the way that someone taking themselves out of that group experience can disconnect other people around them and uh, potentially disconnect you. Yeah, and it, it makes other people angry and they don't feel like it's their place to say so. I think it is. I think people should tell people to stop if they're <laughs> doing it. And, you know, I don't. maybe it's something to do with being a woman, but I don't like being photographed and I don't like being filmed by strangers at all. 
I don't own the audience and they don't own me. We're there together voluntarily. It's not it's not a I'm taking a piece of this right now whether you like it or not. Like cuz you're not I don't know. I, I just it it feels gross. Well, I wondered since since you mentioned pretty specifically about how it felt different to be uh uh, to have people record you as a woman, for example, that there are some... Well, I think mine isn't maybe so much about being a woman so much as it is having to have dealt with stalkers. Hmm. Um, and there's just like a line that I I don't want people to cross. Um, and, you know, the line is, just ask, please. I think that often if you are a musician or an entertainer, that question of the audience doesn't own me uh, or just kind of self-determination and self-control, self-ownership can be a really tough one. Um, Not just with the audience, but because, you know, you have this relationship with a record company, you have this relationship with your art meaning things to people that might be different from what it means to you. Um, how do you how do you feel about the stuff you know the kind of self self determination that you have to give up in order to be an entertainer? Well, that's that's voluntary, and that's something that I don't mind giving up, you know, to a certain extent, and you know, with cooperation from the audience, because obviously. Singing by myself is fun, but singing for the people who are listening feels like I'm actually involved with all of these other humans, and it feels really nice. Um, But as far as the music industry goes, you know, all of these crazy technological changes are happening without consent from musicians ever. You know, ever since Napster and all those other things, you know, music is being given away and they're streaming and, and, you know, YouTube and stuff, which is great. But, you know, musicians get a lot of flack for people saying, you know, well, why don't you want to share your music? It's like, well, I would love to share my music, but it sure would be great if the people sharing my music would have asked my permission. You know, I've been in the music industry for a long time and there was a lot of really crazy things about it that have you know been around since since forever like you're not not owning your own copyright etc which is insane it's insane if you wrote a song but somebody else gets to own it I mean you can let them do that you know but a lot of people never read the contracts and you know musicians kind of made their own grave by not reading the contracts and not understanding them. Um, But also, we didn't think we had a choice for many, many, many years. But if you don't educate yourself about what you're signing, it's kind of partly your own fault. It's like, I'm going to pay for this, but you're going to own my master? What? You know, that just doesn't make sense on any level. And in no other business would anybody (laughs) accept something like that. Yet people have accepted it for a really, really, really long time. It's like somebody coming in and saying, oh, that's a really great house that you built. Yeah, 
we're just we're letting all these people move in or I don't even know what a good metaphor for it is but I'm sure that there would be ways that were a lot more beneficial for everyone if musicians had ever been consulted at any level and we're not I heard a really frank interview that you gave with, I want to say it was Morning Edition, one of the big NPR news shows, and you talked about your parents dying and um, the particular kind of grief that comes when you lose your parents when they weren't there for you as parents when you were a kid. And um, I think a lot of people who are in that position who, uh, as a kid who grew up to be you know, funct- relatively functional adults, one of the things that people in that position do is um, becoming hyper self-reliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, absolutely. And that is an amazing skill. And look, I'm not saying that I have any, that any of these things apply to me, but I'm not saying they don't. Um, and that's a great skill, but it can also be very, it can make it very difficult to, for example, ask for help or... Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I mean? Those kinds of things. I wonder if that was something that, that you've struggled with the kind of like you get this incredible strength from being self-reliant, but you also, you know, it also comes with this kind of fear and this difficulty in learning how to rely on others. Well, I think that you can also be so self-reliant in a way that it doesn't even occur to you that you would ask other people. (laughs) until somebody else points it out to you and you're like, oh, that's what that strange gnawing feeling is that I haven't paid attention to. Or in my case, I would just turn to work for everything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my my parents died and uh, it wasn't it's at the same time, but it was over the period of like three or four years. And I just kept working and working and working and working. And my body just finally said, you know, you kind of got to be sad about this, really. And then I got really depressed. And, you know, it didn't, luckily, it didn't take that long to figure out what was wrong with me. But, you know, I just realized one day that work was not satisfying me and I couldn't hide in it and I wasn't doing very good work. And uh, I, I was still <laughs> pretty much just a loose cannon. And it was obvious. Had you been depressed before? Like, were you, like, did you like recognize that it was a thing going on with your body and not a permanent condition, or did it catch you by surprise? Um. Well, I know I had been depressed at other times in my life, but you know they were really extreme and situational. So I was a little scared realizing how depressed I was because my dad had really bad depression. And I I wondered, you know, could this be something I'm going to have to struggle with 
for the rest of my life, which in a way, probably, but my depression was, you know, luckily it was mostly situational and grief related, but I had never been hit by something so hard because I'd always successfully kind of dodged around things. And when you're a younger person and a kid, you know, you don't know any better. You don't know that you're surviving. You you just think, oh, I'm just living, you know, shoo, got out of that. We're not going to look back at that. And you're just going on. And that works for however long it works for. And then, you know, when it doesn't, you know, hit you really hard until you're 40 years old, you're like, what have I been doing all this time? Am I going to die? What does this mean? You know, it's really terrifying. And then when you realize on top of that, not only is this happening, but it's going to be happening for an indeterminate length of time and you're just going to have to show up to work every day and deal with it, it it's pretty daunting. And But after, after a while, you know, you can settle into it and realize you have to punch the clock every day and hopefully you know things will get a little better things start to get a little funny like you can actually find some serious humor in being really depressed which is you know luckily very true um if you let yourself like being depressed is not sacred and it's not you know it shouldn't be this taboo hushed up subject because there's some really funny stuff about it but it definitely, for lack of a better word, sucks really bad. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you really reevaluate everything and can't recognize who you are and all the things that used to work for you don't work anymore as coping mechanisms or just general patterns of behavior even that used to work for you or things that made you happy don't make you happy anymore or... You don't laugh and, you know, you're real fun at parties. More with Nico Case when we return from a break. Plus, I'll talk with another amazing, talented musician, Tao Wen of Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers from Embedded. Bill Spencer works at a coal mine in Kentucky. And when I start to ask him about a future without coal, he knows what I'm going to say. So if... Coal goes out, I'm done for. Coal Stories on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for Bullseye and the following message come from the Showtime original series, I'm Dying Up Here. The drama series follows a group of young and talented comedians risking it all to make it big. They're each other's best friends and biggest rivals. Academy Award winner Melissa Leo stars as Goldie, the gatekeeper to fame who can make or break their careers. Don't miss the new season of I'm Dying Up Here every Sunday at 10, 9 central, only on Showtime. Watch the season premiere on YouTube for free now. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the singer-songwriter Nico Case. Was there a time that you... Um, that you realized or became self-aware about treating work as a... I mean, I don't know what it's like for you, but I, I know in my case that a lot of times if uh, I I will turn to work because it seems, uh, it seems so manageable and within my power, um, but then I'm not working really to achieve a, 
you know, to express myself or achieve an end or, or whatever. And I'm not, um, and it's not like making me feel any better. <laughs> yeah. You're just logging blocks of time and it's like putting, you know, pennies in a piggy bank. It's like, well, once the piggy bank is full, I'll be fine. I just got to keep putting it in the piggy bank or whatever, but really you're not doing anything. And then you look back and you're like, I only have $2.50. Okay. That was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess there's a, a period of autopilot, which I don't know if it's bad or good. I don't know the psychology behind what happens when you go into the autopilot because I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Like, I don't really know what that means. I did realize I was in it and I was self-aware and I would try really hard to just remember things that did make me feel a little different that day or less in a gray, foggy, you know, feeling than I was. A few years ago, you moved to a farm mm -hmm. in the Northeast in Vermont. Mm -hmm. um, why did you move to a farm? Um, my family are were farmers. Most of them, dairy farmers, and I always just felt really at home in that environment. Um, I like critters. I like countryside. I like trees a lot. I like seasons. And I had lived in Vermont when I was a little girl for a time, and I just felt like it was kind of the only place I had ever fit in as a little kid. And so I was with a friend, um, and we had gone to Portland, Maine, because it was his birthday. And uh, we thought, let's go to a city we never go to. So we went to Portland, Maine, and we're having this great time. And we rented this car, and I was like, oh, man, I think we're only like an hour and a half from where the farm I lived on as a kid is. So we decided to drive over there and check it out. And not only was the lady who had bought the farm from whoever we'd rented it from there, she was standing in the driveway. And I said, are you Sally? She said, why, yes, I'm sad. And, like, not only had nobody died, but no one had aged and no one had moved. <laughs> and I was like, that's it. I'm moving back here. <laughs> oh, just because you wanted to live forever? Because, A, I wanted to live forever. And, B, I just remember loving it so much as a kid. And it was all still there and still beautiful. And people were still friendly and there's cows that come over to my house. It's pretty <laughs> awesome. <laughs> they moo Are... when they see me coming. It makes me feel good. <laughs> They're big brown eyes. You know. Are you comfortable with uh, the kind of like uh, quiet and relative loneliness of living on a farm? Oh, yeah. I love it. There, I mean, there's just so many... Farms are not peaceful, quiet places at all. There's constant maintenance going on. So, and a lot of it is kind of emergency style. Like, the horse is out. Oh, good, it's dark. I'm going to have to go find the horse in the dark. Or, you know, there's just always something going on. And a lot of the things are really exciting. Um, maybe not to everyone, but, you know, just things like the first night of fireflies. And you notice it or the super clear sky and you're like, oh, that's Jupiter. I can see it with my naked eyes right now. Or, 
weird snowstorms with weird curled up ice balls that happen on top of them or hoar frost or just weird things that nature does that you just don't know about if you don't hang out in it all the time. I get I get off on that stuff. Do you feel like you you do your work differently in the context of um you know a farm full of animals in Vermont? Uh like does it affect you, your day-to-day life so much that it affects your art? Yeah, I think the process of making things like songs is a lot easier in the fact that you have to go outside. You can't lose yourself in it so hard that you kind of neglect your basic human health needs, <laughs> which, you know, I've, I've had the experience of suddenly you look up and it's two days later and you're standing on your bed in your underwear trying to figure out what chord goes next in this chorus or whatever and you haven't washed your face or hair and you realize all you've eaten is like a jumbo box of Cheez-Its or something whereas <laughs> at home you gotta on the farm you have to feed animals and go out and walk them and check on things and I generally try to walk around in the woods every day so it it kind of forces you to be a little more healthy in that regard because I, I can get super tunnel vision in a way that's not that healthy have you ever tapped a maple tree no no Just... my neighbors all have that covered though so I would be a redundant <laughs> tapper if I did that uh, do you want to hear my idea for the name of an album by a rapper from Vermont that I think about a lot like probably too much have you copyrighted this uh idea? I don't think you have to copyright it affirmatively. <laughs> you just have to document it now. It's, uh-huh. Okay, go it's ahead. It's the 21st century. I'm so ready. It's like, do you know who Pen and Pixel are? They made no. the like uh, No Limit Records album covers. Like, If you think of a sort of stereotypical hip-hop album cover from like 2000, you know, with like a lot of, uh, like a big Bentley and like a gold font oh, yeah. across the top okay. and a black I know exactly background. what you're talking about. Big dollar signs. Exactly. So it's, de- Pythons, it's designed by them. Skins, in my mind, spandex, and boobies. In in my mind, it's designed by them, the album right. cover. And it's called Tappin' Mapes and Stackin' Papes. It means <laughs> he's really rich from <laughs> maple syrup. <laughs> That's a pretty good idea, right? <laughs> You're a professional musician. It is, it is a really super good idea. Thank you very and much, Nico. Have you got the album written? Yeah. Uh, no. Well, I mean, I'm not a I'm not a rapper, and I'm from I'm from California. I'm not from Vermont, so I feel like uh-huh. this is something that I'm prepared to give to the first great rapper from Vermont, <laughs> and I'm prepared to wait. I don't. I don't know if. I've ever seen anyone that lives near me charge money for syrup. I think it's all they trade everything. Mm. Hmm. Well, it could be metaphorical. I don't know. Stacking papes, like you're you're getting rich in spirit. Mm. <laughs> Huge stacks of dough does not come to mind, but I do want that for you. Thank you. That really means a lot to me. <laughs> And I think you should just go ahead and have the album cover designed. 
Mm-hmm. Regardless well, of whether them. or not you actually record it. I mean, it it's like an inventor's like... syndrome sometimes. Like sometimes the idea is so great that there's no way the actual execution of it is going to come anywhere near what you expected. Because it's yeah. just such a good idea. It is a really good idea. You're right about that. It would be a Tesla style, like a Nikola Tesla style problem to have. <laughs> <laughs> but you would still have your huge wall size album cover Nico- tapping mapes and stacking papes. Nico Case, thank you so much for coming on Bullseye. It was really, really great to get to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. Nico Case from 2016. Her new LP is called Hell On, and it drops next month. She's got a big summer tour planned to promote with dates pretty much everywhere. You can find out more about that on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. And guess who's opening for Nico on that big tour? It's my next guest, Tao Wen. Tao Wen's music is tough to pigeonhole. With her band, The Get Down, Stay Down, it's brighter than most folk stuff, poppier than most indie rock, funkier than either one of those. Her voice is bold, sometimes almost percussive. Here's a little bit of her first LP, We Brave Bee Stings and All, from 2008. The song's called Bag of Hammers. When I talked with her in 2016, she just released her fourth LP, A Man Alive. On A Man Alive, she collaborated with an old friend, Meryl Garbus, of the band Tune Yards. Garbus brings her own vaguely hip-hop-ish aesthetic to it. The bouncy, dancey, sample-chopped and processed sound somehow complements the heavy, heartfelt themes of the album. Here's Millionaire. Chowen, welcome back to Bullseye. Thank you so much for having me back. Of course. So I only just learned that you grew up in Falls Church, Virginia. That's the metro stop that I get off to visit my aunt and uncle. Um, Jesse, for real? Yeah, yeah, for real. On the Orange Line, the East Falls Church? Yeah, you got it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Outside of that really dope Peruvian chicken spot that I think probably opened up since you left. Tell me a little bit about what it was like when you were a kid. If Is it Edie's Peruvian chicken? That sounds right. I believe that's that. When, yeah, I think that opened up um, right as I was entering middle school. And it was, it's, I'm glad to hear it's still delicious. Yeah, that, that chicken's what's up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, growing up, the most prominent and consistent memories I have are of um, working in my mom's laundromat. 
but that that started when I was about 12. And um, so that was what I was doing in some of my most formative years. It was uh, folding strangers' laundry because we had a wash, dry, and fold service. And I had my guitar at the counter where I made change. That that was happening. I spent a lot of time in my room playing guitar, and I spent a lot of time watching television. Was behind the counter at the laundromat an interesting place to sort of watch the world pass by, or were you too busy folding? It was. Yeah, actually, you know, the laundromat, it's a really interesting cross-section of people because everybody needs to have something laundered eventually. And if it was a more affluent or, you know, upper middle class residence, they would bring their comforters in or their dry cleaning. And we also had customers who, you know, were perhaps homeless and, and coming in to what to wash their loads. Then uh and I yeah, as a public service announcement, I learned that when a tag says dry clean only they're most likely just bringing it to a laundromat with larger washers, <laughs> especially with comforters. And they'll they'll fleece you. They'll charge you $12, $14 to dry clean that thing, but then they'll just bring it into our laundromat. <laughs> who, were the, who were the other members of your family? I know you had a brother. I had a brother. I have an older brother who's almost eight years older, and my mom a real upstanding lady. And um, my grandmother lived with us. My grandmother came over from Vietnam when I was five years old. And and she's she's still living with my mom. So she helped raise me as well. Was your mom born in the States? No, she was born in Vietnam. And uh, she immigrated around 74, 75, um, when the Vietnam War was sort of at its... Height at <laughs> that well, you know, when Saigon fell. Was there a Vietnamese American community in Falls Church or in the D.C. area? There is actually quite a robust one. It, um, it, I think, might be second only to Southern California to Orange County. Uh, that's what I heard. I don't know. There, we get pretty competitive, I guess. Uh, there's a <laughs> yeah. There's a pretty. It's a robust yet small community. Um, and there's this place called the Eden Center, which is this strip mall, but everything in it is is Vietnamese-owned and operated, and it's where you'll get the most authentic everything. And that was just a few blocks from my house and very close to that metro stop, to our metro stop. What parts of being Vietnamese-American as a kid and as a teenager did you think were cool and were there things that you thought were embarrassing? Oh, man. I would say, unfortunately, I didn't think anything <laughs> about being Vietnamese was cool because, I, you know, I was growing up in northern Virginia. And the push at that time, the interest was in assimilation. And, you know, I'm grateful that my parents um, instilled in me the importance of of uh, preserving language and culture. And so I only spoke Vietnamese at home. And also, you know, my grandmother was there and she didn't speak much English. So I, I only communicated with her uh, in Vietnamese. And I, but at the time, you know, we, you know, every lunch that I brought in, I thought it was like this, I can smell the fish sauce. This is not going to work out well. And 
I was embarrassed about having friends over and, you know, my mom would go in to meet my teacher for teacher parent conferences and I would be, now I have so much admiration for what they went through, but then I was embarrassed that they didn't speak English that well and that I would have to interpret, you know, we'd, we'd have to, my brother and I filled out every government form you can imagine. And my brother, I, I looked up to him so much, but his interest also, you know, we both felt pressured to assimilate and, and I just followed, followed that lead. What kind of music was going on in your house when you were a kid? Uh, we had, there's, um, this is, now I treasure it so much and I'm, I'm, it just is, it brings me such joy to remember it. But there's this, um, I don't even know what to call it, but any first generation Vietnamese American kid within my generation, my age bracket, will know what I'm talking about. It's this series called Paris by Night, and it's sort of put on by the American based diaspora of. South Vietnamese who left Vietnam uh, when Saigon fell or around that time. And it's a variety show series <laughs> where there's traditional folk music, there's traditional Vietnamese music, and then there's this just infusion of American pop music, but it's always a few years late. Mm-hmm. And so you'd see Madonna doing like a virgin but then two or three years later, Linda Drangdai would uh, be doing um, Material Girl. You know, or it, it just was a little bit. And then the, the boy band thing happened, and then you would see it, it a, f- a couple waves, uh, you know, a different iteration later on. And my grandmother loved to w- listen and watch the, the more traditional folk musicians. But if you had an eight-year-old brother... Mm-hmm. Uh, was he sitting around the house listening to Vietnamese folk music? Oh, no. Oh, oh, definitely not. So then there's the, which was incredible, and I, I think now really helped influence um, my musical tastes and, and bent. But my brother was a big hip-hop fan, and I remember when I was four or five or six, stealing his Fat Boys tape and listening to that over and over again, and Tone Loke and... And so he was totally into um, different strains of American pop music. So that was happening. Motown. But, you know, my my parents also loved Yanni (laughs) (laughs) and Lionel Richie. And my mom loves Yanni so hard and thinks he's so handsome. And we we didn't have cable, but whenever PBS had, uh, you know, he had live at Red Rocks or whatever. At the Acropolis. He did a special at the oh, Acropolis. Yeah. That's the one that's, I remember. That's what I... You're right. Totally. John Tesh was live at Red Rocks, <laughs> but Yanni was at the Acropolis. Uh, so there is that. <laughs> there, I remember somehow the local cable access channel had a, had the Lionel Richie Hello video circulating. And I watched that. You know, we didn't have MTV, but I somehow could watch this Lionel Richie video whenever I wanted you know, and that's the one where the the woman is blind and he, you know, she's sculpting a face and then he puts his face right where she's sculpting. Yeah, sure. No, I yeah. mean, I don't think, I don't think you need to explain what happens in the <laughs> no. Lionel Richie hello video. <laughs> I just wanted to go there for myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I think your songs have 
always had an element of, if not upbeat fun, at least a sort of upbeat anthemic quality. Even when the subject matter is heavy, as it often is on this record, mm-hmm. and I wonder why. Why do you think that is? Why are you, as you know, somebody who, for a long time, was going from town to town with an acoustic guitar, mm-hmm. not wailing plaintively, which I think <laughs> is what you know is the expectation. I think. Um... Content-wise, you're right. It, you know, it, I think, uh, especially with this record, there's a lot of darker content. And there's a lot of grief and rage, and um, and I didn't want it to just stop there. I didn't want the the writing of it, the the sort of the analysis of it or the synthesis of the songs or to sort of be trapped within those constraints I wanted something more productive from it and I I wanted the ability to to celebrate um, my life as it is now and you know practical sort of practically speaking if I'm going to do these songs every night I can't have them sound as sad as they are or else you know I would just melt on a in a puddle on the ground and I wanted this kind of kinetic, frantic energy. I wanted to tap into it in a productive way and and feel that there's joy. I feel like big feelings have a lot of energy to them, a lot of juice. Um, and sometimes it can be hard to feel like you have a place for that energy to go, especially if you're embarrassed to or uncomfortable about being, uh, you know, angry or self-righteous or sad or sort of expressing negative stuff. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if part of that feeling of wanting to make these songs kinetic is about just wanting to have a place to put the energy, even a a physical place. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. And these songs, uh, it's also the the best and most effective way I could find to communicate. And you're right, you have to find a way to do it comfortably and sort of balance the vulnerability of it, balance um, being so exposed. And if you can manage to do it in a way that you are actually exhilarated by and benefit from, um then <laughs> then you should. Let's hear some more music from Tao Wen's new album with her band Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down. The album's called A Man Alive, um, and this song is called Give Me Peace. I'm so much older now.
So, child, the, the overarching theme of this record is your father. Um, can you tell me what relationship you had to him and what relationship you have to him? Sure. Um, when I was young, he was around um, until I was about 11 or 12, um, but he wasn't. He's a very charming guy, and and I adored him, but I wouldn't say that he was... Um, yeah, well, he, he, varying degrees of, um, disappointing, uh, character. Um, so the, he, 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 I, I think he, he was, and perhaps still is like a, a very reckless person who was not meant to be a parent and um and there are varying levels of transgressions within that um so and and now i don't have any relationship with him and we've uh, you know i've we've been out of touch for years and i'm you know i hear about him from time to time and and um i don't remember the last time i saw him and he might call he called a couple years ago i think but i didn't pick up and and that was the last I heard from him. So we have a pretty uh, fascinating estrangement going on. Why didn't you pick up? I just didn't feel like it. I mean, <laughs> it's just yeah. such a drag. It's such. Um, it, it takes so much work to enter that territory and then to reemerge from it. And I, I don't know. I don't know how to <clears throat> how to do it well and I, I don't know that I will and and there's you know there's a lot of uh, emotions uh, that conflict with each other and and um, it's a toss-up which ones win the day depending on the day and this record definitely covers that territory it definitely documents the the feelings of optimism and forgiveness and whatever. Why did you want to spend the time with this part of your life to, to write the songs and make the album? You know, it's funny as I, I didn't, I didn't want to, I really didn't want to. And I spent my whole life not really wanting to investigate this part of my life because it, it is such a source of, uh, grief. But a record was due and I started writing songs for it and I, and it was so clear every song was about some aspect directly or indirectly, um, you know, having to do with my relationship with my dad and, and, um, the, the insistence of those songs made it clear that it was, it was, that was happening. And I guess as I've, uh, as I get older and, I you know I remember having breakfast with a friend of mine. This actually was one of the seminal moments of the creation of their record. Was I was having breakfast with a friend of mine who has a very similar relationship with her dad, a very complicated and um, and she had heard that he was sick, and she was thinking she was sort of struggling with whether or not to get in touch and do we get in touch before we we actually cannot. You know, and and I remember just having 
and I hadn't really been thinking about my dad in that way. And then she just, I was just bawling in this very cute restaurant with um, lace tablecloths and mismatched, like intentionally mismatched um, flatware and teacups and whatever. And uh, it was so embarrassing. <laughs> but, it, you know, it, that moment is, is so vivid to me because I, I realized that <clears throat> this this weight, this, this like fiery pit that I, you know, has informed everything that I've done and not done in my entire life. And so, it, you know, it felt like it was time, even though I, I was um, incredibly nervous and scared to do it. My interview with Tao Wen isn't over yet. Stay with us. When we return from a quick break, Tao will tell me about why, before her 2016 record, A Man Alive, she had a hard time showing her whole heart in her music. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from REI. Human beings are becoming the world's first indoor species now that the average American spends 95% of their life indoors. Take the quiz at REI.com and see how small changes can lead to a better life outdoors. REI Co-op has everything you need to get outside more often, from gear to trips. REI has been sharing their passion for the outdoors since 1938. Visit REI.com or your local REI store. What does it take to start something from nothing? And what does it take to actually build it? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on How I Built This, I speak with founders behind some of the most inspiring companies in the world. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Tao Wen of the band Tao and the Get Down Stay Down. It seems to me like, I don't know, this is true for me. I don't know if it's true for you, but it might be, that one of the most difficult things about living life as a grown-up is getting to a point where you feel like you don't have to live your life relative to your parents. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, because (laughs) your, your entire formation of who you are is relative to your parents. And, you know, at some point you start to give yourself permission to just be a person. (laughs) I feel like that's one of the things that, that I hear on the album both you processing this incredible pain and also you kind of asserting your right to be yourself and be in a person in the world who in a way is not beholden to that relationship. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And I think that that any element of joy that, uh, that someone would hear throughout this record, which I hope there are, you know, I hope that happens a lot. It's in there. It was in there for me. And, and so I hope that gets conveyed. Um, all of those, those, uh, celebrations and joyous moments are, uh, are about that, which I didn't realize until, uh, you know, which I'm continuing to realize is, I think you're right. It's that the assertion of, of independence from whatever weight that is. And, you know, it also was striking to me that I, I approached, you know, Astonished Man, I wrote one of it was one of the first ones. And I thought that the entire record would be comprised of what that song is comprised of, which is this element of forgiveness. 
and wanting reunion and wanting peace. And to let go of that and to understand that this record contains a lot of things um, and to accept that there is no resolution beyond the resolution that <laughs> that is at hand, which is out of my control, you know, which is only within the only thing I can control is my my part in it. And and to sort of free myself of that, too, of this idea that broken relationships must mend given their gravity and given the, you know, the fact that they were once so important um, was, you know, probably the greatest source of peace for me. Was it different, do you think, to do this with friends? I mean, your bandmates, but also your producer, Meryl Garbus, who I know you've been friends with for quite a long time. Oh, yeah. I couldn't. I this record. Well, you know, I don't even think I would have done this record if if um, if it hadn't been Meryl producing, because so much of it was that I need. You know, she knows everything that's happened and she knows my history with my dad. And there's just a lot of messy stuff. And and she encouraged me a great deal to to get in there and try at least and you know with millionaire the song that you played earlier i i wrote that and i didn't want it to be on the record because i, I it freaked me out how vulnerable i sounded and how straightforward that sadness was but she's like are you kidding like this is going you know it has to and and i see it's the heart of the record in a lot of ways and it it's an incomplete effort without it but yeah, I know. There's there's no way that I would have done it. And and same with the band. We kept we kept the session incredibly tight knit and it, it's only the band or you know, some mostly in the past we've had guest musicians and collaborators and whatever, but this was so uh it, it was really important to me that it only be people who were my friends and who I trusted. Do you feel different having spent this time to make this album? I do. Yeah, which is so which surprises me because I didn't think it would have that much of an impact, but the entire process was so important and I see now very necessary and I feel you know with the, with the records in the past it's like a, it's that kind of accountability thing that I I was talking about where I kind of, you know, you you phone it in a little bit, or you don't deliver everything you could because if you do, then what what does that mean? If if you're disappointed, you know. Oh. But anyway, w with this one, I'm I'm so proud of the work we did, and I know that we and that I did everything I could do for this record, and I owed it to myself, and and everything I do beyond this, and performing it, and talking about it, or whatever is I'm is a service to the, to that work that we put in and it's to help honor this important, you know, this incredibly necessary dive, <laughs> this, this excavation, you know, I feel proud of myself and proud of our band. And, and I know that we worked as hard as we could well, Tao, thank you so much, pal. It was so great to get to talk to you about this amazing album. Thank you, Jesse. Thanks so much for having me back.
Shao Wen from 2016. Her latest album, A Man Alive, is out now. You can listen to it and buy it pretty much anywhere. This summer, she's embarking on a big tour. Alongside Nico Case, head over to the Bullseye page on MaximumFun.org for the dates. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the outshot. When a rock song rocks, you don't really hear the lyrics. You feel them, which is why this lyric is so spectacular. Generals gathered in their masses Just like witches at black masses I read an explanation of how the Black Sabbath song War Pigs got its lyric. It's something about war as the ultimate evil, the true devil. But what matters isn't so much that as the feeling it gives you, the complete package, the thrill. Death and hatred to Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Black Sabbath's greatest power lies in how they frame fragility against strength, fear against bravado. Listen to Ozzy Osbourne strain his way through the lead vocal of Paranoid. Might be their most recognizable hit. It's an ode to depression. And Osbourne somehow sounds both broken and triumphant. Black Sabbath wrote relentlessly dark songs, but they're alchemical. They turn darkness, war and death and loneliness into this incredible, defiant sense of power. It's absurd, of course, the whole grand aesthetic, the demons and the death and the war to end all war. Robert Christgau, the dean of American rock critics, said he couldn't get over it. He said he could only listen to Paranoid as an artifact of camp. But here's my recommendation to old Bobby Christgau and to you. Don't listen to the songs. Feel them, because there's nothing else like it. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. It's springtime, and you know what that means. The lake is green, vibrantly, intensely green. Actually, that may be a problem. I'm not sure. I don't know a lot about lakes. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Production fellows from MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme was recorded by the Go Team and provided to us by Memphis Industries Records and by the band. 
If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org or grab them from your favorite podcast software. And while you're at it, you can join us on Facebook. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. We share all of our interviews there. You can do the same. Uh, We've also got clips and highlights. And, uh, man, uh, this week we shared a great video of Jay-Z and Eminem performing their song Renegade on a rooftop on the David Letterman show in High Fidelity. Amazing clip. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Nobody wants-